This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Today we're talking about The Cider House Rules by John Irving. It was published in 1985 and later turned into an Academy Award-winning movie. It is a sprawling novel that tells the story of Homer Wells, an orphan who is never adopted. He's born in the 1920s and grows up in an orphanage in a remote part of Maine. Many pregnant women come to the orphanage for help with their unwanted pregnancies. Some women come seeking abortions, which are illegal, and others come to deliver their babies and leave them behind. It's also the story of Dr. Wilbur Larch, the director of the orphanage and the man who delivers all of those babies and performs all of those abortions. Here's how the book begins. In the hospital of the orphanage, the boys' division at St. Cloud's, Maine, two nurses were in charge of naming the new babies, checking that their little penises were healing from the obligatory circumcision. In those days, 1920-something, all boys born at St. Cloud's were circumcised because the orphanage physician had experienced some difficulty in treating uncircumcised soldiers for this and for that in World War I. The doctor, who was also the director of the boys' division, was not a religious man. Circumcision was not a rite with him. It was strictly a medical act performed for hygienic reasons. His name was Wilbur Larch, which, except for the scent of ether that always accompanied him, reminded one of the nurses of the tough, durable wood of the coniferous tree of that name. She hated, however, the ridiculous name of Wilbur and took offense at the silliness of combining a word like Wilbur with something as substantial as a tree. That's Dennis Reese reading that excerpt from The Cider House Rules, John Irving's sixth novel. It was a number one national bestseller, and John Irving is one of the most famous graduates of the Iowa Writers' Workshop at the University of Iowa. Anthropologist Emily Wenzel and author Rachel Mans McKenney are two of our expert readers. They'll be here in a few minutes. But first, Lauren Glass is here, professor and chair in the Department of English at the University of Iowa. Hello, Lauren. Hello, Charity. It's a pleasure to be here. I am kicking myself for choosing a novel that's impossible to summarize. (laughs) It's truly encyclopedic, as are all of his novels. Absolutely. I mean, it's nearly 500 pages, and it tells so many stories within the story. And I think instead of talking about that right now, we should start with John Irving, because he is one of the most famous graduates of the Iowa Writers' Workshop, which puts him in truly elite company. So what do we know about his time at the workshop? Well, John Irving is one of a handful of writers who both uh, taught and studied at the Writers' Workshop. He was a student at the Writers' Workshop between 1965 and 1967, during which time he was part of a group that clustered around Kurt Vonnegut, who was a a little-known visiting SF writer um, at that period. Uh, John Irving wrote a number of novels which were not very well received, in fact, um, in that early period, and then returned to Iowa from 1972 to 75. Um, and he was a instructor here at that time. Um, one of the students that he advised was T.C. Boyle. So he gives us one of these opportunities to actually sort of trace an arc of mentorship from um, Vonnegut, who was 
as we can see, a, a, a considerable personal and stylistic influence on John Irving, all the way through to um, the uh, highly well-known class of the 1970s, which included Ron Hansen, Alan Greganis, Jane Smiley, a bunch of well-known authors uh, studied at Iowa when John Irving was a teacher there in the 70s. There are also some stories told about Irving living in Iowa City. Anybody who who knows very much about him knows that uh, he's a wrestling enthusiast. He was a wrestler himself. So being in Iowa, the capital of wrestling in the United States, was really exciting for him. But there are also stories uh, about some of his uh, more peculiar habits, aren't there? Um, well, actually, I, um, I remember we were talking about him chasing cars, although here I'm interested, I was reading up on this, and there apparently was a um, an opposition between the wrestlers and the boxers in uh, in the late 60s when Vonnegut was um, teaching here, and um, obviously uh, Irving was in the wrestling team, and the boxers were the students of Nelson Algren, who um, Irving apparently hated. And, you know, um, I wanted to read a quick quote from him about that time about why he liked Kurt Vonnegut because it it impinges on on one of the themes we're going to be look, uh, discussing here, masculinity, as well as one of your least favorite authors. You told me yesterday you hate Hemingway. Oh, gosh. Uh, Irving hated Hemingway too. I never liked Hemingway. He was a faux tough guy and a tough, and it was faux tough guy prose and tough guy stoicism. And he was a blowhard, a braying loudmouth who wrote sentences short enough for advertisements. When I first went to Iowa as a student, I told Vance Bourget Lee that I thought of myself as the anti Hemingway. This was probably why I chose to work with Vonnegut. Kurt was so not Hemingway. Kurt was the anti macho man. Uh, but at the same time, Irving finds himself getting into a fight in a bar with uh, one of Nelson Algren students, um, who was arguing that, you know, boxers could always beat wrestlers. So um, it's fascinating the way uh, Irving managed to be um, sort of, you know, a new male and an old male at the at the same time in his um, in his self-fashioning. Yeah, that is fascinating. And you have to finish the chasing cars story now, too. Yeah. So he was um, and this was I, I remember this is from uh, Garp. He hated to be asked about whether, you know, the uh, autobiographical elements of his novels. But uh, there always were, of course, as with most novelists. Um, and he, you know, he was something of a house husband. Right. He was the one who stayed home and worked um, on his uh, on his novels. Um, and apparently he would uh, his window was facing the street and he would be enormously uh, enraged by people who didn't go the speed limit or, or went on uh, rolling stops through the stop sign uh, and was known for actually chasing cars um, for uh, for refusing to um, drive safely on the Iowa City um, streets. Nice, which which is something that happens in his very, very famous novel, The World According to Garp. And I mean, speaking of autobiographical details, there are lots and lots of them in this novel. So I guess we, we better start talking about the plot a little bit because it's it's the story of Homer Wells and and his growing up and his experiences but it's also the story of Dr. Wilbur Larch who is the man who runs this orphanage and in many ways raises Homer Wells and one of those autobiographical elements is that Dr. Larch seems to have been largely inspired by John Irving's grandfather right Correct. And uh, Irving's um, biography, although he uh, wouldn't like us to look at it this way, is all interwoven through uh, this novel. As you noted, his own father was lost over Burma. And indeed, as, as you also noted, he never he never met his 
real father and didn't even find out about this story until much later. So he was raised um, by a stepfather who is also an instructor at Phillips Exeter Academy, which is the basis for a number of institutions that appear in his fiction. And indeed, one of the things I, I also thought is autobiographical in what we might call a general thematic way is the idea of unusual family arrangements. <laughs> uh, but the idea of children being raised by families that are just kind of ad hoc thrown together as a matter of of, of uh, circumstance and contingency that clearly is a concern of his, and he wants to um, defend and exonerate those families. Right? He wants to really um, narrate positively the story of um, upbringing and family arrangements that many people would uh, condemn, and that that's certainly an element of this as well. And then the whole childhood experience. You know, he worked uh, at apple orchards as a as a boy um, in New Hampshire. So uh, there's lots of his own memories and his family history is, is again, interwoven through the plot of this novel. And you already mentioned uh, that Kurt Vonnegut was one of his great mentors. And we can see elements of John Irving that are clearly inspired by Kurt Vonnegut. There are things in this book that maybe were, were designed to be homages to Vonnegut, the use of limericks throughout the book. And there are a couple other scenes where I'm like, wow, that feels very Vonnegut-esque. But it also feels very much like a Charles Dickens novel. And he clearly is inspired by Dickens. And he refers to Dickens novels throughout this novel. I mean, he clearly, this <laughs> is what he's trying to do. Clearly, uh, Irving is indebted to and enamored of the great 19th century Bildungsromans, um, uh, of which David Copperfield and Jane Eyre are the two, you know, respectively male and female versions. Um, and I think he has a great affection for the Victorian novel as such in the sort of, you know, doorstop uh, encyclopedia, multi-generational um, kind of, of take um, with the kind of sarcastic tone and, and satire that uh, Vonnegut has, right? So Vonnegut with the voice feels like Vonnegut, but the length and the multiplicity of characters and the extension of time and the, and the focus on, um, you know, one protagonist individual development. I will say one of the things I noticed, though, is that the um, the other commonality with Vonnegut that overlaps here is the um, peculiar protagonist, the protagonist who, uh, who we now might call actually neurologically diverse in some way. I'm thinking all the way back to Billy Pilgrim uh, of, of Slaughterhouse-Five, who has some similarities, I think, to, to Homer Wells, um, where you have that kind of uh, absence of ethical judgment or that, that sort of uh, suspension of a certain kind of um, component of consciousness that most characters and people have, but they seem to, to lack. So I saw some similarity to um, in Irving's choice of the protagonist around which you orient the narrative and then some of um, Vonnegut's protagonists as well, in particular Billy, Billy Pilgrim. Interesting. Well, and, and you were using the, the literary term Bildungsroman, and that is a novel dealing with one's formative years or a person's formative years or spiritual education. And I feel like this is almost a triple Bildungsroman because we have Dr. Larch, we have Homer Wells, and then there is an, another character, Angel, who comes along much later in the novel, and we also begin to see his personal journey and his spiritual development as well. But we are going to take a short break right now and talk 
so much more about this sprawling novel. With me right now is Lauren Glass. He is professor and chair of the Department of English at the University of Iowa. We're talking about the Cider House Rules by John Irving, and this is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We are talking about The Cider House Rules by John Irving, published in 1985. It's the story of Homer Wells, an orphan who is never adopted. He grows up in an orphanage, but as a young adult, finds work at an apple orchard and experiences more of the world. The book is about many things, how our experiences shape us, the meaning of family, abortion, ethics, rules, and more. And our expert readers are here to tackle this sprawling novel. Lauren Glass is professor and chair of the Department of English at the University of Iowa. And Emily Wenzel is here, an anthropologist of healthcare and gender focusing on masculinities. Her latest book is Collective Biologies. Healing Social Ills Through Sexual Health Research in Mexico. Emily, welcome. Thanks. Happy to be here. And it's perfect to have an anthropologist who studies masculinity and gender (laughs) as part of this panel. So I'm so excited that you are here. But you are a John Irving fan from way back, right? Yes, in Life Imitating Art. So we're talking about how this book shows people's, it's a building's Roman, it shows people's personal development over time. I was a huge John Irving fan as a teenager and hadn't read his work for decades. And going back, it was like, oh, this is why I became a masculinity scholar at all. You think you make your own choices, but... um, who knows? John Irving had a role to play. Yeah, I was a big Irving fan too, but I went into radio, so I don't know. We didn't all become anthropologists. But tell me, tell me sort of from this time through, tell me your responses to the book. Um, so, you know, you go back to a book you really enjoyed and you're always afraid it's not going to hold up. Many don't. This one, for the most part, there's, I think, a key way it did that we can discuss later, but for the most part, this one really did. Um, and what I liked about it particularly is that as a gender scholar, we talk a lot about social science, in social science about how gender isn't some essence that's the same across place and time, that it's the combination of someone's own individuality, but all the, the context in which they grow up. And this book is very much saying that about gender, about masculinity, about things like ethics. It's basically saying how or making a claim sort of that we are who we are because of the situations we find ourselves in. So I think it resonates with gender scholarship of today. Absolutely. And I want to bring our next expert reader into the conversation as well. Rachel Mans McKenney is the author of the 2022 All Iowa Reads Adult Selection, The Butterfly Effect. Rachel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Charity. And this was the first John Irving novel that you've ever read, right? And thank you for taking on a nearly 500-page novel <laughs> for me. But give me a, give me your reaction. It was a fantastic challenge. And honestly, I was delighted by the book more than I would have expected. Um, I wasn't sure what to expect. I figured from looking at a brief synopsis of the book that it would be kind of a downer, and (laughs) especially with so many of the heavy themes involved. Um, But I loved how playful this book got. And I think we'll be able to talk about so many aspects of the characters and the themes and how they played out throughout today. 
Absolutely. But let's start with that playfulness, because when I chose this book, somebody responded and said, oh, yeah, that's a really sad book. And I thought, oh, is it? Because that's not the feeling that I get from this book. But if you do pick apart the plot and you talk about the different elements with the, you know, abandoned children that nobody wants and the women who are in terrible circumstances and just so many, so many pieces of it. Yeah, it sounds really sad. And and Lauren, I know you have some thoughts about that because it, on the face, it looks like it should be a sad novel. Indeed, the plot is tragic, but the voice is comic. And so when you read the novel, you get the comedy. Uh, for those who have seen the movie, the movie really is very sad. And it's actually surreal to watch the movie. I was telling Charity, I, I haven't had this experience before where the movie is almost like the, it's the same story, but told in a different mode. Um, and then you get to really appreciate how intense a lot of the plot elements are and how, how tragic many of the uh, elements of the plot are. But Irving's voice is both comic and I mean, the heart of this story is about pregnancy and abortion. And, you know, a lot of people consider that to be a women's issue. And he actually responded to that. And in I'm sure he's responded to it many times. But in an interview that I read where he said, you know, someone says, well, why are you so interested in women's things? Or if there weren't to, as if there weren't two people involved in a rape or as if abortion, especially illegal abortion, were only a woman's problem. I'm not interested in women's things. I'm interested in victims. And it still is true today, both outside the law and inside the law, to victimize women is more easy than to victimize men. But he says, this doesn't make me a feminist. So <laughs> this is that's a really interesting take on it. And Emily, I'm going to turn to you first because... I mean, he, he he writes really from a man's perspective in this book. Men are the main characters in almost every way in this novel. And yet it is a novel about abortion. Yes. And I, I love and hate that. Right. <laughs> but I think it's it's. It's great because we do tend to focus on reproductive health and rights and care as women's issues. Yeah, as Irving said, completely ignoring the fact that men are are involved crucially. And so even though it's a book about male main characters and their relationship to good sex, bad sex, violent sex, harmful sex, um, procreation, fathering, paternal love, like all these things, um, we also hear about their interactions with women. And I think this, the strongest parts of the book are when we're hearing about the character's own views and their arguments, often between male characters like Homer and Dr. Larch, about what is ethically right for a man's role in sex, a man's role in reproduction, and a man's role in abortion care. Um, I think it is true that, that since women are not the focus, they are not always fully realized in the book. And there's an interesting moment, I think maybe Irving sort of had an inkling about that because one of the female nurses calls out uh, Larch and Homer. She goes, well, well, that Larch doesn't see women and Homer sees them, but he looks away. And it's true that many of the female characters are more comic or one-dimensional. So it's, I mean, it's a, it's a sort of man's abortion and ethics book, which plays a key role, right? We need we need more books about all people's uh, experiences of these things. Well, and Lauren mentioned his uh, rejection of Hemingway. I do feel like his exploration of these male characters is far less stereoty stereotypical than most novels of that time or earlier. I, I think 
for sure. And Emily, I know that was something that, that you thought a lot about too, because these men are not men just because they were, you know, born with penises, as I'm sure John Irving would say, <laughs> but, but because they are shaped by society and their circumstances. Well, and I think the, the sort of quote with the uh, circumcision, there's a reason he puts that in there, right? That we see from from the moment of birth, society is shaping who you are as a man and your future sexuality and reproduction and, and all these things. So we really see that what it is to be a man is debated, is fraught, is shaped by traumas, is shaped by the men's place in these unequal worlds where they sometimes find themselves victimizing women and complicit in that or active in it uh, without having meant to. Um, so we definitely see lots of different ways that men can develop into certain kinds of men, can change over time, and can respond to their circumstances. So um, it's very much not a deterministic book about gender. It's a book about how um, gender, like ethics, like all the other aspects of being a person, develops out of place and time and experience. Yeah. And Rachel, I know those those flat female characters, that's something that that you and I talked about. And yet these men are their characters are are so well fleshed out and I mean, really fascinating and nuanced in, in some really incredible ways. I would definitely agree. I listened to this as an audiobook, but had I been reading the physical copy, I think I would have thrown it against the wall at the end and screamed justice for Melanie. Um, <laughs> I had so many complex feelings about Melanie's character. Okay, wait, 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 let me book. tell people who Melanie is, just in case you don't know, because Melanie is, is another orphan. She's raised in the girls' ward. And as she grows up really without love and guidance for the most part, although she, she does have some loving people in her life, but she she grows up, she's she's much more of an angry, violent person. And she goes out in the world and has these various adventures. Uh, she falls in love with a woman. She beats up a lot of men. Like <laughs> she, she's a really complex character, but you were frustrated with her treatment, Rachel. <laughs> Absolutely. And whereas, you know, Homer is allowed to develop in all sorts of ways in response to the gender roles that are put upon him, I'd say that Melanie takes on many male gender roles, but she isn't allowed to participate as a male in society where she probably would have been more comfortable in that way. Um, there's a really affecting scene where she fights off men who are trying to rape her. And then she goes back and tries to get the job that those men had. And the people just responding to her in that situation and sort of staring at her, you feel that gaze. And it's not exactly a male gaze. <laughs> it's more of just like a don't know what to do with this woman in society sort of of gaze. It's amazing. Yeah. Well, and, and Irving does explore gender, not just in this novel, in other novels as well. There is a transgender character in the world, according to Garp. Um, and and there are, in his novels, there are all kinds of different different iterations, different feelings. And, and Lauren, I mean, even in this novel, I really felt like um, Dr. Larch is more of an asexual character, and, and, which is not something that when I first read this book when I was 19 years old that I had had the words to describe. But uh, gender and sexuality is clearly something that Irving wants to challenge our ideas about. 
No, absolutely. And I want to return to um, context determining gender. And of course, one of the things that shapes our gender identity is reading novels. And uh, and this novel in itself, it's a very didactic novel in a certain way. And one of the things I think it's telling men is you should know more about women's biology. <laughs> um, it's a very pedagogically oriented novel. And as I was mentioning to you, you know, before the 60s, Novels were one of the only places you could get sex education with any sort of, of you know, and people used to uh, pass Lady Chatterley's Lover around, you know, secretly to try and figure out just the, the just the basic mechanics of, of, of sex. And so um, I think the novel isn't only about how gender is shaped by social context and culture, but it's trying to intervene in that. It's trying to, um, and I think it is geared a little bit more to men in that way in that it's partly about um, getting rid of ignorance um, uh, about um, how, how sexuality works. And yeah, um, Dr. Larch's uh, asexuality or basically um, withdrawal uh, is an interesting and it's almost a moral point, I think, that uh, he's trying to make, that Irving's trying to make there about the um, avoiding the ethical choices that would be involved if you do have sex, right? Some of the rules that are discussed in this novel are, in fact, the rules of how you should behave uh, when you might get someone pregnant or when you, right, when you're involved in that way. Uh, and uh, Wilbur Larch, in a sense, has decided to just be a almost a sexless voice um, uh, in this um, uh, sort of, and it's weird to think of a father figure as asexual. There's a paradox there, I think, but he is a fascinating character in that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I was thinking on, on one level, it makes him somewhat unrealistic because uh, most humans really can't be asexual in the world, um, but some can. And Emily, I, I know you and I were talking about that. You know, the, the term asexual for a human being is not something that we had when we read this in the early 90s. Yeah, it's true. So through through like today's lens that he has a specific sexual identity that makes sense that there wasn't really language for when Irving was writing this. But I think a conversation they have about ethics in the book a lot explicitly is that to do nothing is still an ethical choice. Um, and that comes up a lot in discussions between Dr. Large, who performs abortions, uh, and Homer, who thinks they should be available, but does not want to perform them himself as an orphan. Um, and Dr. Large frequently says, okay, well, you get to make that choice, but the women don't have a choice. So to do nothing is a choice. And so I think that's interesting also when you look at Dr. Large's decision, because just to give a little plot backstory, he decides to never have sex again after um, his sexual initiation, which is when his father pays for sex with a sex worker and he meets her daughter. And they both have very sad life stories to do with not being able to access safe legal abortion. So I think in this, this is a case where doing nothing for Larch becomes a real ethical choice. And rather than sort of having sex or procreated, he chooses to, to engage in some really creative ways of creating like parenting relationships. And also he's constantly writing. He writes a whole history of their town, some real, some fake, some somewhere in between. So he's very like procreative in other kinds of ways. And he lives with a woman who is in love with him, but in a completely asexual relationship, which is, is also pretty interesting. But we, we've talked about abortion. We've talked about, you know, around it a little bit. And Lauren, you were referred to the, the novel as didactic. And I mean, it is, Rachel, I'll let you start us off here. I mean, it is a very thorough exploration of all of the arguments surrounding abortion on both sides. 
Absolutely. I think that Irving gives voice to all perspectives of the issue. Um, people who are religiously opposed uh, for particular reasons, even Homer has that feeling that there is a soul um, in the, the fetus, whereas Wilbur is on completely the other side, views it as a scientific process, um, the removal of matter, that kind of thing. And then, you know, different levels of ignorance in between. I think what what you are allowed to see on this page is every kind of situation where people argue either for or against abortion. And I think that's why it has to be such a long book <laughs> to allow for so many of those occasions to exist. <laughs> that's true. But also, I, I was struck by, um, although it, it definitely comes down on the side of pro-choice or, you know, the availability of legal abortion being important. I would say that that is definitely Irving's perspective. Um, I felt like all of these different viewpoints were explored with respect. I mean, this is not the kind of battle that so many people engage in on the subject of choice. Emily? Yeah, I mean, I I think a, a sort of key point of the book, and it even comes up in the title, right, about rules, is that we as humans create rules to be ethical, but if we are sort of imprisoned by those rules, we end up doing horribly unethical things, right? So that there's always gray area. There's always a choice to be made that's not the choice you would have thought would be the right choice, but if you don't make it, you're actually being terrible. So I think um, it really contextualizes that look at different people's perspectives on abortion within this broader sort of ethical statement about, yeah, we, we need rules. We make rules for a reason. People have different rules. It's good to be ethical but you need to separate what you think you would do from what you should do in a given context. And you can't slavishly follow the rules um, because, say a law, um, you'll end up doing harm sometimes also. I also think that part of the, you know, you talk about the voice being sort of didactic. You know, part of what I noticed in his tone throughout the book is who he allows to have dignity or not, who he allows to have too much satirical attention put on them versus who he allows you to just be tender toward. And I think there's that moment where Wilbur Larch is attending to his first abortion and he goes to the family of this rich woman who he's, he's doing this abortion at their house and he tells them to treat her like a princess. Um, And he makes a family member observe the entire process in order to sort of bear witness to this occasion and to have it be something that, that the audience has to sit there and be present during um, in a, in a way that's very, It feels very tender and respectful. We are going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. We are talking about The Cider House Rules by John Irving. With me, Rachel Manns-McKenney, author of the 2022 All Iowa Reads adult selection, The Butterfly Effect. Emily Wenzel, an anthropologist of healthcare and gender focusing on masculinities. Her latest book is Collective Biologies, Healing Social Ills Through Sexual Health Research in Mexico. And Lauren Glass, professor and chair of the Department of English at the University of Iowa. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. We're talking about The Cider House Rules by John Irving, published in 1985. It is a sprawling novel that is the story of Homer Wells, an orphan 
who is never adopted. He grows up in an orphanage. And he also then later on goes to work in an apple orchard. And it's a it's a very difficult book to summarize, but it's a book about people finding themselves and experiencing the world and being shaped by their circumstances. And it's also a book about abortion. That's really at the center of this novel. With me to talk about it, Lauren Glass, professor and chair of the Department of English at the University of Iowa, Emily Wenzel, an anthropologist of healthcare and gender focusing on masculinities, and Rachel Mans McKenney, author of the 2022 All Iowa Reads Adult Selection, The Butterfly Effect. And uh, I want to talk about a an issue that comes up in the book that I think we all feel did not age well. I mean, this this is a novel that really resonates on a lot of levels, or at least it really does with me. I loved this book the first time I read it, and then I came back to it, and there is a, a part of this book that, that really doesn't work for me anymore. And and that has to do with race. And, and we encounter this at the apple orchard. We have migrant workers coming up from the South. They are all Black, um, coming up from the South to all white Maine or mostly white Maine and interacting. And uh, Emily, you have a really, I think, an excellent insight into maybe why this section of the book didn't age well. Yeah. And how uh, the thing I, I sort of interacted with most differently as an adult than as a teenager. And um, so I'm a white person. I think I didn't notice as a teenager that the book really, I would say, centers a white reader, like the imagined reader of the book is white, because not just because it's about white characters, but because it does have black characters and it does criticize anti-black racism explicitly, but it does so in a way that's really an index of the morality or the ethics of the white people. Um, there's really only one fully realized black character in the book, and he turns out to have some some truly evil qualities. So do many of the white people in the book, but there's just a diversity of them, right? So when you have lots of representation of people from a certain group, you can have good ones and bad ones and, and ethically gray ones. And so to have only the one fully realized black character and to have him be so ethically gray, it's just problematic. So I. I don't know that I'd recommend it for that for that reason. That really, I think Irving, not meaning to implicitly, as many white people do, had a white reader in mind. I, I think that's true, and it, I think it it kind of it dates the book. It makes it feel very 1985, Lauren. No, I would totally agree, and I think in the in the representation of the African American characters, I think that's where uh, the satire and the social realism collide and don't work well together, whereas in the other characters they sort of do. Um, you know, the white characters are mostly satirical or satirically rendered for us. But as you can tell from the movie, there's some level at which the social realism of the characters still survives. And you can see this as a realistic novel that is is about people, you know, that actors can represent and that you can see in three dimensions. Whereas um, you can't, uh, uh, if you strip, if you take the satire away, you just get stereotypes and racism with these characters. You don't get the sense of any sort of ethnographic. And, and of course, th it is a real situation. In other words, there were uh, um, whole cohorts of African-American migrant workers who would work their way up from Florida up to the right following the um, the harvest. And the and that was a community um, and a reality of the of, of migratory patterns then. Um, but they're not they're not given the 
the kind of dimensions of as as full human beings that the other that the white characters still have even when rendered as stereotypes. So yeah, I, I guess I, it's a uh, it's an uh, aesthetic and cultural failure uh, in the in the novel. And and actually, you can see that in the difficulties the movie has in adapting. The movie has to change the way those folks are represented. Also unsuccessfully, I would say, but in a way that 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 sort of illuminates uh, the failure of the novel to 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 make that those characters work. Interesting. That's very interesting. Did you have anything you want to add to that, Rachel? Not very much. I'd say that the only other people of color we really see in the book are during Wally's experience. His family owns the orchard, um, and his plane is shot down over Burma, and we see his experience as an outsider being tended to by these people, and he truly doesn't know what's going on in it. Uh, we get to see um, that fish out of water experience where he is the minority in that group and they're taking care of him. Um, and that's, I think, a more generous representation of uh, people of color uh, in that experience. But you certainly don't see that, you know, in the cider uh, house itself. I will add that the African-American characters are important to Irving um on a thematic level because they have their own rules. Uh, and so they're, they're, they're not treated well as characters. They're not rendered uh, uh, effectively, um, but they are important for the relativity, the ethical relativism that is sort of implicit in the novel, right? There's that time, you know, we have our own rules. We don't follow the cider house rules, right? So um, they're, you, they're central to the, to the plot and the theme, but they're totally marginal in terms of, uh, you know, significant characters playing, playing a role. Well, and let's talk about rules, because I, I think uh, for some people, it probably takes a little while to figure out why even is this novel called The Cider House Rules, uh, <laughs> which which play a pretty small part in the, in the story of the novel overall. The Cider House Rules are a list of rules that the owner of the orchard posts on the wall of the cider house every year that is supposed to keep things relatively safe and, and neat and nice in the cider house where all of the, the migrant workers live. Of course, when she posts those rules, she is not aware that the vast majority of the migrant workers can't read them. Um, but we do see this interplay of, you know, yes, we have our own rules. You can put those rules on the wall, but but we have other rules to follow. However, rules are a theme that you see throughout the novel in so many ways. And we've already talked a little bit about Dr. Larch, who has all of these rules for everyone and for himself. And it's just something that that comes up again and again. And Emily, I'll let you start here because there's you were talking about all of the shades of gray that that there are within all of the ethics in this novel and of course also in real life and we see the characters really grasping for something more concrete yeah we get presented with a world in which rules are both necessary and futile right and and can become evil and can come to do the opposite of what they're intended to do and so we see that people grappling with all these ethical gray areas all these various forms of inequality and vulnerability make rules to try to navigate situations the best way they can and this includes interpersonally i think we haven't even talked yet about how uh, homer is involved in like what today would be called sort of a polyamorous relationship but at the time when it's at that parts of the 1950s yeah thruple but it's the 1950s so it's an open secret and so all the people involved make very clear to themselves, implicit rules about what they can do, where they can do it, what they can say, and it sort of ends up not ultimately working. But so we see people in all these ways making explicit rules, implicit rules, and we also see that 
even when you mean well, rules can sort of outlive their usefulness. And that in the worst cases, rules like uh, the criminalization of abortion can really be used to, to do harm in sort of these cruel ways. So, so it's this interesting thing. I, don't say, I wouldn't say it's an anti-rules book because we see people making rules for good reasons that serve good purposes, but it's also a book saying rules are not the same as ethics. Don't confuse the two. Right. Well, and <laughs> to, to make a leap, um, I want to talk about addiction in the novel, too, because Dr. Larch, who is uh, in many ways a saint, he is seen as a saint by, by so many of the people that he interacts with, and he works very hard to do good in the world as he sees it. Um, he's also an ether addict, which he can excuse. Rachel, what are, what are your thoughts about the role addiction plays? I think that without his addiction, we would be unable to relate to him in the same way. Honestly, he's such a controlling character. He's sort of the puppet master in so many ways of, of everyone's actions, especially at the orphanage, that he needs this, this, out, this ability to lose control. Um, and so this is his, his way of completely being unable to control himself is, is the ether. Um, Hayes. I th- I've meant sense that the, um, and here the novel I think is also maybe more subtly didactic, that there's a difference between externally imposed rules and roles which you derive from your own experience in life, right? And the Cider House rules are written on this piece of paper by the white boss for the black workers, and those are clearly seen as sort of to be disobeyed. Um, but at the same time, there is a sense that some moral compass or ethical uh, orientation should rule your life. And I actually, the uh, justification or maybe an analog I found for this is uh, Irving's philosophy as a teacher. He says, an older experienced writer can be of use to a young, talented writer. The older writer can at least save the younger writer some time. You can't convert young writers to your method or you shouldn't try. You can illuminate your method in an unpushy way as a means of getting them to discover what their method is however different it is from yours. I don't have a method of teaching writing. I certainly do have a process that I have learned to follow as a writer, but I don't urge my process on anyone else. And so I think that that philosophy of teaching that you can't impose a set of rules and say, okay, this is how you must behave or this is how you must write, but you can help what someone develop, right? Their bulldog, their their development as a person uh, to get some sort of ethical or moral compass, but it's going to have to come through experience and, and learning from trying and error, not from studying a book of rules. He also hates critics, right? He doesn't, uh, Irving, right? He doesn't want to, generalizations or boxes that you check and stuff like that. Um, he's much more in, uh, I think, trusting people to come to their own guidelines for life or rules. Um, and rules are constantly being broken. And by the way, Melanie is the one who has no rules. She said she, she breaks all the rules, right? So, um, uh, you know, it's sort of that double thematic. Well, it, the, uh, it's interesting when you describe Irving's teaching philosophy, that is exactly Dr. Larch's teaching philosophy as well, because he he is giving Homer Wells all of the information and he definitely knows what conclusion he wants Homer Wells to come to. But he gives him time. I mean, he gives him 20 years <laughs> to come to that conclusion in his own time. And there, there's a lot of uh, a lot of sadness and maybe some anger and some heartbreak along the way. But um, it, it's uh, it is interesting. And Dr. Larch, who allows himself this this ether addiction, also is extremely judgmental about um, alcohol addictions. And, you know, so we we see him 
talk about his alcoholic father. There's an alcoholic in a foster family that abused Homer Wells. It's there's definitely uh, this acceptance or of a double standard there, Emily. Oh, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even stop at double standards. I mean, that's that's I think a reality of life that the book captures. Right. Is that people have all sorts of different standards for different kinds of people for different situations. Um, and I think the an interesting backstory in Larch's ether addiction is that he gets it or he starts using ether to deal with the pain of a gonorrhea infection that he gets after his father has paid for him to have his, his sexual initiation. One um, and only sexual experience. Yes. And so in a sense, like the the genesis of his addiction is like it's it's part of his sort of being sorry. Right. Like his remorse for like what he has done. Right. He sees that act of sex as violent, even though to, to the woman, Mrs. Eames, it's just part of her daily life. But her daily life is pretty terrible uh, because of society. Uh, but so he sees basically the gonorrhea as part of his like being sorry. And so the, his addiction grows out of that. Um, so I, I think maybe a theme of the book is that you need to have a good reason for what you're doing. And be able to justify it. Not that there's sort of an abstract universal right or wrong, but like, what's what's your story, right? What's the backstory of what you're doing? And is it a compelling story? So it's a very novelistic take on ethics now that I think about it. Well, and it, I think it's also about personal responsibility and like, OK, you know, you own you own your choices and you've got your reasons for them, but you better have reasons for them. Uh, we are nearly out of time. And this is a very long novel. It's nearly 500 pages. We've talked about the fact that although there there's so much sadness in the novel that it has this sort of comic voice and it I find as a reader it just carried me along. I find that that it it reads fast now. It read fast when I read it when I was 19 years old and you just kind of plow through this book and and follow these journeys that Irving is taking you on. Rachel, what do you think your takeaway is from this novel, from the experience that John Irving gave you? I'd say especially reading this book for the first time as a person from the Midwest myself, I kept being hit by the idea of politeness over kindness, which is definitely a theme that worked just as well in Maine as it does here as a modern reader in Iowa. And you can see Irving's experience reflected as an Iowa author in that as well. Um and all of these things that could be avoided, these issues that could have been avoided if somebody just sat down and had a straight talk. Um, but then you wouldn't have a 500 page novel either. So <laughs> <laughs> no, and then that's a the we didn't even dig into the the subject of lies, which come up again and again as as a way to take power in a in a situation. Yeah. Doctor Larch writes in his journal that. Orphans love lying <laughs> because it's, it gives them a little bit of power in that situation. But I think I think that's a really interesting takeaway, Rachel. Uh, Lauren, I'll let you go next. What do you think we take away from this novel? Well, lying and fiction writing uh, are similar practices. And um, as I've told you before, I'm always looking for allegories of the workshop in novels by people from the workshop. And in some ways, it, with a little bit of tweaking, Doc, uh, you know, Wilbur Larch is a creative writing teacher and um, <laughs> Homer Wells and Angel Wells, who does become uh, a fiction writer, are learning how to tell lies which help people live better lives, right? I mean, it's partly a, a novel of, of, about what novels can can do, I think. Yeah, I think so. And and Irving talks about being interested in victims, uh, but he's also interested 
in the people who try to make the world a better place. And maybe that sounds a little lofty, but he does really seem to want to explore that idea of, you know, this is a person who wants to make circumstances better for others. Emily, what do you think? Oh, I mean, it was interesting to read this in a political moment when things are very polarized and we tend to have a black and white discourse about any number of issues because it's a book against that, about about black and white discourse. So I would say it's a helpful reminder. I mean, I'm kind of a rule follower. So it's a helpful reminder that following rules doesn't give you ethical cover and neither does sticking to a life philosophy that you've decided is yours and just going with it and writing it out. That what what is ethically correct is looking at the consequences of your own actions in the context of like inequality and reality that you live in and and being responsible for those consequences. Emily Wenzel is an anthropologist of healthcare and gender focusing on masculinities. Lauren Glass is professor and chair of the Department of English at the University of Iowa. And Rachel Manns McKenney is the author of the 2022 All Iowa Reads selection, The Butterfly Effect. Thank you to Prairie Lights Bookstore in Iowa City for providing books for our readers. The Talk of Iowa Book Club is produced by me and Matt Alvarez. Our executive producer is Katherine Perkins. I'm Charity Nebbe.